This episode was brought to you by Brooke There, an organic lingerie brand with comfy, ethically made undergarments. Check them out at brookethere.com. This episode was also brought to you by The Rounds, a zero-waste grocery delivery service. Check them out at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com slash rounds and use the code ConsciousLife to get one month free and $10 off your first order. The partner links will also be in the episode description. When we talk about sustainable and ethical fashion, we often think about the future, at least I do. We ask every guest that comes onto the show what a better future for fashion looks like to them. But I also see immense value in looking to the past to see where we came from so we can understand how we got here and what solutions could actually be effective in bringing about change. So I was intrigued to read the book, Worn, A People's History of Fashion to understand this history more deeply from a worker perspective. And it did not disappoint. I learned so, so much from this book, and I knew I had to get the author, Sophie Tannhauser, onto this podcast. And here we are today. Sophie is joining me on the show to talk about some of the key themes covered in this book like how the Industrial Revolution spurred mass production and fashion, and not just from the standpoint of technology, like what is often talked about, how the rise of advertising helped enable the rise of fast fashion, the toxic, shocking history of rayon, the factors that enabled synthetic fabrics to dominate garment production, and what we can learn from successful labor movements of the past as we advocate for change in the fashion industry today. This season of the podcast is focused on the intersection of fashion and climate justice, but we don't take a super narrow view of the climate theme. And I think that this episode shows a lot of the overlaps between workers in fashion and the textile industry and the industry's environmental impacts. We see how the lack of worker rights and low wages connects to overproduction, how lack of worker safety is connected to the continued production of toxic synthetic materials, how advertising covers up the realities of how our clothes are made and enables fast fashion to continue to thrive. We also will be continuing our green or greenwashing ending segment in this episode. This week, Stella and I will discuss our thoughts on this trend of climate change ready clothing. Do we really need clothes that are, quote, designed for the apocalypse? Are they filling a need or is this just a scheme to get us to buy more stuff? Stay tuned until the end to hear our thoughts on that. And as always, all the links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes, as well as the link to subscribe to our weekly newsletter where you can learn more about sustainable fashion for free. All right, now let's get into this week's episode with Sophie. Sustainability has become little more than a buzzword in fashion. What would it really take to build a more sustainable, responsible, and equitable fashion system? That's what we're dedicated to exploring on the Conscious Style Podcast. Each Tuesday, you can join me, Elizabeth Joy, and me, Stella Hertantio, along with our lineup of change-making guests to navigate the sea of greenwashing and to build a better future for fashion.
Sophie, I learned so much from your book. I had like a hundred post-its throughout it of notes that I wanted to come back to. And so can you just give listeners a bit of a background about what Warren is all about and why you decided to write it? Sure. It is, as the subtitle suggests, a history of clothing with a lot of emphasis on labor history and environmental history, the history of imperialism. It's really a global story. And I decided to write Warren about 10 years ago. And it was a it was a slow process that involved at first a lot of anger, really. I was I'm a person who really enjoys clothes. I've always been a thrift shopper and a sewer. And at a certain point, I started to notice that the quality of contemporary clothing was less good than older clothing that I would see, for instance, in thrift stores. And I started to notice things like old union labels and old garments and what happened to those and made in Bangladesh, why? Or made in Hong Kong, like from a a decade before that, why? And started to think about a lot of things in concert, started to think a lot about women's labor. And I started to think a lot about water and the story of cotton um, and the stories of various textiles form the structure and backbone of Warren. It's divided into five different textile types, linen, cotton, silk, synthetics, wool. And the linen story is really the place where I talk most about the ways in which textile making has been predominantly work that's associated with women's labor in many cultures historically and get into the way that the Industrial Revolution really altered the nature of textile work and continues to today. Cotton is a section where I talk really about imperialism and about the way that England and the U.S. and certain countries in the global north, as it's sometimes called, kind of came to control labor and material throughout the world. And then um, silk is about luxury and sort of PR and all the stories we tell about fabric and clothing. Synthetics is a section where I really talk about international trade regimes as they exist today. It's a sort of a post-war story. And then wool is the section in which I get into more redemptive tales of small-scale textile making and some of the more regenerative projects that are happening today to do with textiles and clothes. So it's a hopeful way to end the book. And it is a book that contains a lot of difficult stories, as you know, but also a book in which I wanted to include kind of the magic and beauty of of textiles and fabric, because I think that's what originally brought me to the subject matter. Yeah. How long did it take you to write this book? Because it has so much research. I mean, it was one of the most impressive books on this topic I've read. I was just absolutely enthralled with everything that you shared in it. Thank you. That's very kind of you. It was about a decade. (laughs) If you had told me when I started out that it would take that long, I probably would have quit. And I did quit a lot of times in the making of this book, especially you know, like eight out of 10 of those years of work on the book happened before I even had a book deal. So it wasn't as though I knew it was going to be published. I just had a feeling that somebody needed to write this book. For a while, my pitch to people was, 
I want to do for clothing what Michael Pollan has done for food, which was to me just start a conversation about the environment and about labor and about the history that has brought us to a certain trade regime, basically. And it's such an intimate thing, clothing like food is, and yet it is intimately connected with a global labor story that if it's kept invisible, really serves certain interests and doesn't serve others, including, I think, the health of workers and the environment. So it felt like a really pressing an important project to me. And at the same time, it felt like a really unwieldy, impossible project to me for many, many years. And I got support and help in all different kinds of ways, including from residencies or grants that I got through school. Um, I did an MFA over the course of writing this book. And that kind of put me in touch with like travel grants. But it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of kind of quitting and saying, this is crazy. I can't do this. This is too, too big. And then just getting sort of tugged back in as if the project just really wouldn't let me go. And I, I tried to brush it off and couldn't. So that, that is how I ended up working for 10 years on a book about clothing. Well, that's such great to hear because, you know, we had an episode on slow media before with Kestrel Jenkins, the host of Conscious Chatter podcast. And I think there is a bit of this loss of appreciation for like really great work that takes time, you know, mm-hmm. in the age of like TikTok and Instagram reels. It's, you know, these quick wins, quick growth, quick everything. And I think that's really good to know. And, and I appreciate knowing that behind the scenes, because sometimes we just see everybody else's like what they're producing and we don't understand what it takes to do that. And it does take time. So thank you for sharing that. And something, I mean, there was a lot that we could touch on with this book. As I said, I had like a hundred post-its, could have asked a hundred questions. But one thing that I really wanted to ask you was about the similarities you see in today's fashion industry with like some of the historical labor struggles throughout the history of cloth and fashion and the industrial revolution and all of that, because a lot of it sounded quite similar to what we're, what we're seeing today from my vantage point. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think one of the main things I wanted to clarify in writing this book was that the discussion that we're having around fast fashion today, and it has in the last few years even become so much more of a a buzzword and a and a part of public discourse, is that the phenomenon we call fast fashion really is spoken about often as though it's a few decades old. And really I wanted to place the origins of the system that is now accelerating at a greater and greater rate every year or every month, it seems, I wanted to place the origin story of that like several hundred years ago. And I think that the story really begins with the Industrial Revolution, but not merely the Industrial Revolution as kind of a mechanical revolution that made it possible to turn raw fiber into thread, but also the Industrial Revolution as it was positioned within the global political economy. So because England already had begun to take political and economic control of the Indian subcontinent at the time that it developed textile machinery, a certain 
world system evolved that included really a willingness to kind of in an unlimited sort of way, exploit labor and the earth, really. And I think that's the similarity that we see today is the willingness to to use land to grow crops on a monoculture level. So to grow cotton in you know vast acreages in such a way that depletes the soil that the cotton's being grown on, makes it in some cases unusable for future generations combined with a willingness to kind of search the world for the lowest labor costs that are available. So today that has kind of landed a lot of textile and garment production in literal concentration camps in Xinjiang and Western China. But on a, on a less dramatic note, it you know, leads to things like factory collapses in Bangladesh, where you have such pressure being put on subcontractors by big corporations to lower the cost of production that there's literally a situation where workers' lives are not protected. So those kind of those kind of pressures and that willingness to exploit in an unlimited way both land and labor, I think can can be seen all the way back to that moment. When yes, a suite of machinery was evolved that could turn raw fiber into fabric, but at the same time when a system of global power was being kind of inscribed on the world, whereby it became you know, politically possible to, for instance, remove indigenous people from land in the American South, take over that land, build a plantation, import slave labor, and then grow cotton on a monoculture basis ship that cotton to Manchester or to the North to then manufacture it into. So all of those political facts, all of that violence and all of that willingness to use people and land in that way, I think is not new, but I think it, I think it really does have an inflection point at the time around the industrial revolution. Yeah. It's so important to uh, have that context into what got us to where we are today. The exploitation isn't new of, the land or of people or of animals um, and any other living being either. And another really interesting historical context that you added for me was this rise of advertising and how that kind of paralleled with the rise of mass produced fashion. So can you share a bit about that, like how advertising may have enabled perhaps the beginnings or the acceleration of of fast fashion? Sure. Yeah, they're both really stories that take place in New York, actually, in the 1920s. New York was the garment hub of the U.S. and it's sort of there that, I mean, also in Chicago, also in Boston, but New York was the center of the garment trade as it developed in kind of the early part of the 20th century. So it really relied on, first of all, the availability of, you know, mass manufactured fabric, and then the development of the sewing machine, which is a story that I tell in Warren. But once both of those factors were in play, you know, like mass produced textiles, sewing machine, then you have the ability to set up a factory in which you mass manufacture garments. And at the same time, the ad industry was ramping up kind of being developed really. And one of its imperatives was to basically convince a nation that had very recently been made of self-sufficient farmers 
that they needed to buy stuff that they had never needed to buy before. And also to kind of convert the dissatisfactions and frustrations experienced by industrializing society into a desire to buy goods instead of into a desire to do revolution. So there's a very interesting way in which early advertising was not just a way to sell products, but was very consciously conceived of as a way to convert the dissatisfaction that people might feel in their lives because they were increasingly engaging in kind of stultifying forms of labor to convert that dissatisfaction into the desire to buy a product. That was kind of the original magic of American advertising. And I would say it remains the kind of beating heart of American advertising. And in clothing, this had a special purchase, I think, because of the fantasy already present in in clothing. I mean, there's fairy tales from, you know, long before this, like Cinderella, that talk about what magical transformations can be brought about by a garment. So I think there's something in the human psyche that really understands that clothing is magic and that a garment can change your life. But then you combine that with a a very cynical ad industry, and it becomes, I think, an especially potent tool used to convince the consumer that often, you know, configured as a woman, a female consumer, that if she buys the right dress, she will secure the, you know, love and affection of a man who will then lead her to having financial stability. And so all of these, all of these kind of cudgels are wielded to make the consumer feel that the product being offered will lead them to safety, really to safety. So there's like an animal part of us that wants to make sure we are safe. And I think the advertiser really early on said, if you're breath smells bad, no one will like you and you will be expelled from society and you will die, <laughs> right? Like, and, and that's a kind of similar logic at work with the way that fashion was marketed from quite early on. Like if you, if you buy this dress, you will be desirable, you will be hireable, your life will have meaning. And, and, and if you're sick of your life and if you're sick of your job and if you're sick of your husband, like maybe actually all you need is a new hemline. That was also from very early on part of the message. Another important important kind of dictum of early advertising was that it's very important not to see the manufacturing process in the ad. So there's a very, very serious separation between the sweatshop, <laughs> which exists on the Lower East Side, you know, like not far from the, the place where the manufacture of the image is happening but kind of a world removed, you know, when you look at the final ad. And it was something that advertisements or advertisers rather were were quite clear on. It's very important not to see the sweatshop. You see the final product, you see the retail display, but never, never behind the scenes because that does not, that does not look as desirable. Yeah, there was a, a quote that you had in the book that I don't quite remember it exactly, but something along the lines of an advertiser saying, don't look at how these clothes are being manufactured because it'll make you not want to do this work anymore, basically. And so that separation was very intentional. And I think that's important to note because there's a lot of blame put on the consumer 
which to an extent now, now there is much more awareness and much more, we're much more exposed to the realities of how clothes are being made. But I think it's also important to recognize that, that how our clothes are made, the realities of how and who is making these clothes, it's intentionally not shown to us and for a reason. One category in my closet that I am particularly committed to prioritizing organic natural fabrics for is undergarments, like the pieces I have from Brooke there. Brooke there creates organic cotton bralettes, underwear, and slip dresses that are ethically cut and sewn by their team in Massachusetts. Their God-certified organic cotton is even milled and dyed domestically in the U.S. too. Brooke there has a beautiful range of colorways from ballet pink to bright orange to versatile neutrals, which are all colored using low impact fiber reactive dyes. I have a set from Brooke there and Cairn, a lovely dark purple, as well as an undyed set. I really love that Brooke there has an undyed option. It's perfect for those with ultra sensitive skin. And the small slow fashion brand considers their sustainability every step of the way. Brooke there even ships their undergarments in recycled minimal packaging. You can check out Brooke There by visiting brookthere.com or by visiting the link in the episode description below. Looking for the convenience of grocery and product delivery to your doorstep, but not a fan of the wasteful packaging? Enter in the rounds. This closed-loop two-way logistics network offers a zero-waste delivery process by delivering your essentials with refillable containers in a reusable tote bag and picking up the empties for you, mostly by e-bike, to clean and reuse them. On the rounds, you'll find everything from grocery items like local coffee, freshly baked bread, and pantry staples, as well as everyday essentials like cleaning products, personal care items, and pet supplies. Often you have to sacrifice convenience for sustainability, or you end up having to sacrifice sustainability for convenience and saving time. But The Rounds is flipping this paradigm around and offering you both a more sustainable and more convenient service. The Rounds is currently available across a few cities in the U.S., but will be expanding soon as part of their mission to make zero waste the new norm. Check them out at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com slash rounds. R-O-U-N-D-S. The link will also be in the episode description. And be sure to use the code CONSCIOUSLIFE to get one month free and $10 off your first order. So you also write how rayon was a material that was gaining popularity during this rise of mass-produced ready-to-wear fashion. And rayon or viscose is, you know, as how some people might know it, is still widely used in fashion today. But the health dangers associated with rayon production and its use of carbon disulfide were really quite shocking to me. So what should listeners know about rayon and how it's produced? And if you know, is it still produced today how it was 60 years ago? Yeah. So as you said, carbon disulfide is the key word. To make rayon, you take wood or you find another source of natural cellulose and you basically have to liquefy it into a pulp. And carbon disulfide is a really powerful and very neurotoxic solvent that is used to turn wood into pulp from which you can extrude filaments of rayon. Historically, In the US and in France and in Britain, rayon workers went 
often the, the way that carbon disulfide would manifest itself is that workers would go insane. They would start murdering people or killing themselves or jumping out of windows or self-asphyxiating. Really horrifying neurotoxic events were happening, but manufacturers obviously were very disinclined to admit that carbon disulfide was what was causing this. So it was really easy to write things off to, oh, this was a, you know, this was a criminal person or the individual is to blame. That was the strategy taken by industry for many years, really up until in the U.S., up until the 1970s, when rayon making was offshored, there was never put into place an adequate worker protection that set exposure to carbon disulfide at a level that was safe. That never happened, despite OSHA, despite a lot of good work by scientists and by by activists, by workers themselves. The industry was able to make sure that it didn't have to spend the money that was necessary to create as it is possible to use carbon disulfide and ensure worker safety, but it's expensive. It's it's about venting and achieving the appropriate air quality and keeping the parts per million down below the threshold where it causes these neurotoxicities. So it's a truly horrifying story. And it's one that I do think is part of rayon production today. It's hard to get an exact quantifiable sense for how big of a problem it is. A lot of rayon is produced in China. And in China, the stated levels of carbon disulfide exposure that are legal are much better than the old American standards were. They ought to keep workers safe. It's just hard to know whether those are always being carefully and scrupulously followed in industry, as it is often the case. In India, there is also a lot of rayon manufacture, and there hasn't been a lot of work done on this by researchers into industrial safety, but there are some anthropological reports that are really alarming in that they they talk about towns where there is rayon factories and refer to higher rates of, of events that seem to be really similar to the kinds of events that happen in towns where there is carbon disulfide poisoning happening, similar kind of mental disturbances among workers. So there is a lot of evidence, I think, pointing to the fact that workers in India, and I think possibly in China too, despite the better um, caps on carbon disulfide exposure, are not being adequately protected. So it is something that is hard to say with great certainty what exactly is happening where, but I certainly wouldn't trust that just because something has been made in a country with an appropriate cap. It is being made in a factory that obeys that cap, although I would like to hope for that. And I think it's certainly a start. But in India, I don't know that the legal caps are even adequate to uh, protect workers. So I think it's an ongoing question, but it is something that I think I would encourage people to investigate a little bit more before saying, Rayon, great, it's wood, It's, it's natural. Because how you take something like wood and turn it into a soft fabric is a chemically intense process that does have side effects for for people. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because I do see viscose or rayon being referred to as like plant-based fabrics, which, yeah, it was, did come, I guess, you know, from a plant, but it's like... uh, there's a little bit more to that story, perhaps, and it should be investigated if the process is, in fact, still 
eco-minded and and still safe for workers as well. So that was quite a shocking chapter. I, I knew that there were potentially toxic chemicals used in the production of viscose, but I did not realize the extent. So rayon is often referred to as a semi-synthetic, but nylons you share were the first fully synthetic material used in the textile industry. And that's another really important story, I think, to understand where we are today in fashion. So what enabled the success of synthetic materials like nylon to take such a strong and fast hold on the textile industry and in fashion? So nylon, so yeah, it's the first kind of purely petroleum-based fabric. So it's made from basically messing around with the molecules of petrochemicals to produce a fiber. And I think there's a lot of forces that allowed this fabric to become what is now the largest. It so has surpassed cotton is now the most common fiber in our in our garments. I think it was a combination of things. One is that the companies that manufacture petro fibers from early on and still are highly concentrated. They're big chemical corporations. So it's it's not, it's a very capital intensive thing to do. Like you need a lot of capital to produce a petro fiber. So these big companies, many of which still exist today from the early days, like DuPont, for instance, or they had political clout, which was wielded from early on. And I think it's just also important to note that these fibers did do things that older fibers hadn't been able to do. So early on, people loved synthetics because uh, you didn't have to iron them. So like wrinkle-free, you know, you can throw them in the dryer and not worry that they're going to shrink. Like there are actually things that these, that a petroleum-based fabric can do that cotton or wool or linen can. And, and people who don't have a lot of time to devote to laundry and ironing, which is, you know, most of us now, like there are real benefits for the consumer in something like that. So it's not just, just advertising, but there is sort of an, an unlimited kind of quantity that can be produced too, because there, there's really no natural barrier. I mean, there, there is to a point, but this is as much really petroleum as you can as you can draw up from the earth, which we, we know there's still plenty of that left, like you can turn into textile. And so one of the things that I don't think is really a feature of petroleum-based fabrics, but is like a historical coincidence, is that their de- development has c- coincided with um, the globalization of the garment industry, really, which is a story that starts kind of in the post-World War II period. So it's a kind of a complicated story that I tell in the book, but it really is the story of the Cold War. And it has a lot to do with the U.S. State Department setting up textile industries first in Japan and later in places like Korea and Taiwan as a way to kind of make sure those economies didn't, quote unquote, fall to communism. So the U.S. State Department helped create mass manufacturers of originally of garments and textiles, basically. And all three of those places became big producers of of rayon and polyester that then came into competition with the U.S. 
So basically, over the course of the decades following World War II, you have a situation where the U.S. economy is being opened to imports from Asia because the State Department wanted to make sure there was a market for these products. So they're opening the U.S. market, flooding it. The U.S. textile industry is being slowly destroyed, ultimately is completely destroyed, and the industry has been globalized. So like, they obviously made a lot of textiles you know, in Asia before this, but they weren't making them explicitly for export into the U.S. market or into the European market. So the system of global trade that we have today really became fully globalized, I think, in 2005 when this sort of system of tariffs that put a limit on the amount of garments that could be imported to each country was eliminated, at which point the price of clothing dropped pretty much in half. And consumers started buying pretty much overnight twice as much. And um, just the quantities that are involved and the the freedom with which textiles and garments can now crisscross the globe without tariff boundaries. I know it's a kind of a long digression, but all of these kind of political facts lead to a circumstance where labor costs are so negligible that you can kind of expect to be able to produce and sell an unlimited amount of garments to consumers. And these fabrics, petroleum-based fabrics, are the cheapest fabrics there are to produce. They're also stretchy, which is really good if you're mass manufacturing something that can fit more people. Like you don't have to tailor very carefully if you're making something with a stretchy fabric, right? Like if you're using a rigid fabric, you have to think about construction and the individual body. And there's a lot more design consideration there. So I think the story of you know petrofabrics is really part of the story of the globalization of the industry. And I think that where we've arrived today is a place that really combines both kind of the physical characteristics of these fabrics and the political characteristics of the world that we built after World War II. Yeah. And I mean, that was another part of the book that I was just really engrossed in was this story of globalization of the U.S. garment industry, because I feel like it's really often oversimplified, right? I mean, companies outsource to get cheaper labor, which is true. It's not untrue. It's just there were a lot of other factors like the State Department's investment in building up these manufacturing facilities in Asia, for instance, that contributed as well. Were there any other factors you think are important for us to be aware of? It's a good question. I mean, it's a big topic. I think one of the things that I found fascinating in researching this was the existence of export processing zones, which I don't know that everyone is familiar with. Export processing zones are kind of an odd legal entity that I wasn't familiar with before I started doing this research. I visited a couple in Vietnam and I visited some in Honduras. There are kind of walled enclaves that have different legal structures than the country that surrounds them. So they can be places where, for instance, export and import taxes that might apply just outside of their gates don't apply, or where labor rates are set at a different level. They are marketed as being big job producers and ultimately good for the economy of the country in which they are located. 
But there is a lot of evidence that suggests that because it's predominantly really low-wage labor that happens inside of them, because a lot of the time all of the materials are imported that go into the product and then the product is exported without any taxes being removed, that really they, they benefit the corporations doing business in them much more than they actually benefit the countries in which they are located and the citizens of those countries. So I think export processing zones are a very important thing to pay attention to, not just with textiles, but with electronics and other goods. And there's also a story that I think it's just another big geopolitical story that's sort of too big to tell right now, but that I think is important to just point to, which is kind of the the relationship between the U.S. and the Caribbean basin as it unfolded kind of through the 80s, which is another story about about imperialism, really, and about a way, a time during which U.S. textile producers were really struggling to hold on and kind of a system of trade was set up that allowed U.S. manufacturers to use the Caribbean basin as basically a, a big garment factory in ways that it was claimed would help would help those countries, would help their economies, but ultimately in ways that proved to, if anything, impoverish people and not build industries there. So I think a lot of the time, the promise of low-wage labor inside of an economic zone is offered as if it's going to be a boon. And I think it's worth being a little bit skeptical of those promises. Yeah. And throughout the book, you tell the story of several social movements and worker-led movements. And you share how some were successful and some were not as much, for instance, with rayon and carbon disulfide. What was the difference maybe between the movements themselves or the external factors at play at that time between those that did lead to change versus those that weren't as successful and thinking about, you know, what can we learn from that in today's climate? Because there's a lot of fashion related legislation happening right now around the world. Well, I think the big success story labor wise that I tell is the story of the garment trade and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, who really did succeed in making garment manufacture a good middle class job for many decades of the 20th century. So it can be done. It is not true that garment manufacture has to take place in a sweatshop. It doesn't. It can actually be a good union job that workers can can do and also live rich lives. So one of the things that really excited me about some of the activists that created and energized that movement was a lot of them were women who really believed that workers didn't just have the right to a fair wage, but that also they deserved the right to cultural opportunities, the right to art, the right to leisure, the right to enjoy cultured leisure time. So they really had education and art kind of center centrally in their strategies from the beginning, which I found so exciting when I was reading about them. A lot of them were Jewish teenagers, basically, from like the pale of settlement in like what would now be Russia or the surrounding countries who left because of pogroms in the early 20th century and then ended up in the Lower East Side working in sweatshops. And they had read a lot of Marx and they were really thinking about what their rights were. They had come to the United States and they thought they were going to get to go to school. And then they end up working in a sweatshop and they really 
theoretically and practically worked incredibly hard and with incredible bravery to unionize the Lower East Side and then ultimately successfully unionize the whole Northeast, basically. So what can we take away from their success? I mean, one thing that I think is important to note is that they were joined. So those workers, for instance, who went on strike in the Lower East Side, who were beaten by cops, you know, who were kind of ignored, really only got paid attention to when middle class or upper class women from like the Upper East Side came down and joined their marches. They're called the Mink Brigades. So in that particular moment in American history, it was not a scandal to beat up a working class woman. That wasn't enough to infuriate people. But if there was a wealthy bourgeois woman wearing a mink coat getting beaten up, like that was a scandal. So I think that that kind of solidarity is something that we can take away from that moment because without the solidarity from other sectors of society, those garment workers wouldn't have achieved the success that they did early on. Another thing that they did that I think was important is that they found a way. So I'm going to have to like back up a minute. It's a little bit complicated, but a lot of the time um, brands, what now we would today call brands, don't actually manufacture clothing. What they do is they contract to a factory that manufactures the clothing for them. And one of the things that happened then and that still happens today is that when there is an industrial accident, when there is a fire or a building collapse, the brand turns around and says, well, that has nothing to do with us. I mean, that wasn't our factory. They were a subcontractor. So one of the things that the Ladies Garment Workers Union did was it evolved a strategy of contract negotiation that made the brand liable for whatever happened in the factory. So that made it impossible for them to kind of slip out and claim that they had no relation. And that kind of triangular negotiation, I think, is something that we can we can learn from today. So after that massive collapse of a factory in Dhaka and Bangladesh, a lot of energies that had kind of been brewing both locally in Bangladesh and internationally kind of came forward to produce a really powerful accord on worker safety in Bangladesh. And one of the features of it was that it did this kind of triangular agreement. So if you are going to sign a contract in Bangladesh and be part of this accord, you had to become liable legally for something happening on the ground, even if you were the brand. And the biggest American companies operating in Bangladesh refused to sign on to this because they didn't want to be held legally liable. So if we can make that kind of contract the standard, I think then there is a possibility to create a situation where worker safety matters. As long as brands can completely divest themselves of legal accountability, I think it's very hard to imagine where the coercive power is going to come from because brands don't do the right thing on their own, unfortunately. And we are working now in a very globalized environment. So it is important to think internationally, I think. And um, it is important to look at the lessons of the past. And also it's a wildly more globalized circumstance now than it was then. So so how do we think strategically? And I think I think solidarity is a big part of it, both across class and across the world. So I do think that's something we can take away. 
Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Solidarity and these legally enforceable agreements. And I know the Bangladesh Accord was uh, expanded to be the international accord and they yeah, recently expanded into Pakistan. So I will leave information about that from Remake, an incredible organization advocating for that in the show notes for people to check out. And I will also leave all of Sophie's links in the show notes, including the book, Warn. Sophie, I just have one last question for you. And this is the final question I ask all guests, but I'm particularly excited to hear your answer because you have such a depth of knowledge about the history of fashion. And the question is, what would a better future for fashion look like to you? That's a great question. To me, I think the gold standard, and I know that this is a little bit utopian, if not very utopian, but to me, the gold standard is that the person who is making the clothing is achieving creative fulfillment through that work. So I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't, I'm not advocating for us to completely get rid of mass manufacture or, you know, go back to all making our own clothes. But I think it's important for me to look to, you know, that energy that I was talking about with the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and think about the worker as a human being who doesn't just need a fair wage and, you know, the ability to stay alive, but also has a soul and a creative spirit. And so, you know, what does a garment system look like in which the workers and the farmers are all being kind of self-actualized as creative beings? To me, that is what I would like the future of fashion to look like. And now we are moving into the green or greenwashing segment of this episode where we evaluate if a certain sustainability measure is more green or more into the greenwashing territory. This week, I wanted to talk about something that was brought up in an article on Vogue Business called Clothes for the Apocalypse, How to Design for a Climate Crisis, which talked about performance wear brands that are basically designing garments for extreme weather. So... The green or greenwashing question in this episode is all about whether climate adaptive clothing or clothes designed for the apocalypse is a truly necessary factor in the fashion industry as we are in a climate crisis or merely another buzzword and trend that is not necessary. What are your thoughts, Elizabeth? Oof. Yeah. I mean, this, my first instinct was kind of, this is kind of weird. And (laughs) I thought about it more. And for me, it all comes down to the intention, right? Is this out of a genuine need or is this using the climate crisis to sell more stuff, which is very icky. And, you know, I get it. We certainly do have more extreme weather, hotter, colder, drier, rainier, more likelihood of extreme fires. One of the brands featured in that article had like fireproof clothing. So I don't know. I guess the marketing around clothes for climate change feels a little iffy to me because it's like, is that positioning? There's a climate crisis. Therefore, we need to buy more stuff. That's like also probably contributing to the climate crisis because we know fashion is such a heavy carbon footprint. But at the same time, maybe we do need different clothes. Maybe we do need different garments to help us withstand different 
weather situations. I don't know. That's, uh, I'm not sure yet what I think. (laughs) No, I agree. I think the marketing is a bit yikes, like when I was reading the article and the wording. And I think something that kept coming up for me while I was reading it, which is also not to bash the article, but to say that it prompted a lot of thought. Something that kept coming up for me is that, you know, who's going to be able to access this clothing? Because in the sustainable fashion movement, we speak a lot about needing to create inclusive alternatives. And the more I read about these really complex, technical, climate adaptive clothing innovations, it seemed like these would be clothing items that would only be available to financially privileged people. Yeah, that would be able to afford them. And I don't know, somehow that really didn't sit right with me because, you know, we know we're in the middle of a climate crisis and it's going to affect us all. But currently it's disproportionately affecting people in the countries in the global south. And I'm just thinking about like the floods I've witnessed in my own country or floods in Pakistan or droughts happening across Africa. And I'm just thinking about like, would these people really be able to invest in this clothing and would it really help in these situations? (laughs) Yeah, that is a really, really good point. But I am like going to some of the brand websites pages and yeah, it's like a jacket for $700 or a shirt for a couple hundred dollars. So that is definitely important to think about that. Like maybe those, those that are even most impacted by the climate crisis wouldn't be able to afford pieces Mm -hmm. like this. Even myself, I don't think I would necessarily be able to afford such huge investments. So yeah, it's interesting to think about cost accessibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a very real concern. And to be honest, I don't think I don't think I would I would buy these things. I mean, so another huge question in terms of like the sustainability that I have of these performance materials is that most waterproof gear is made using PFAS or forever chemicals and called that because of their persistence in the environment and in our bodies. And so the big question is like what materials are being used? I do hope that if these clothes are climate ready, they will be very durable. And I do wish that was more part of the marketing that these are really made to last. And like, you know, just thinking also about the sustainability of the garment themselves. So like these climate adaptive clothes aren't furthering are, you know, part of the problem with fashion contributing to the climate crisis in the first place. Yeah. And I think on that point, I totally agree because I don't know, this is just my hot take, (laughs) but I think what we put on our bodies when the quote unquote apocalypse reaches us is not necessarily going to save us, but the way we make clothing and the way we consider supply chains and distribute, you know, wealth equitably within the fashion system and make decisions within sourcing that are more sustainable. I think the way we adapt our production systems to be in harmony with people on the planet has a very strong chance of lessening the effects of extreme climate changes. And I, for me, that's where we need to be focusing our energy. Yeah, 100% for sure. I feel like like going back to the beginning, like the messaging is just so important. And it does feel really off when a brand says like close for the apocalypse. It definitely veers into like climate doomism which I think is really dangerous and just so depressing, you know, like, yes, we need climate adaptation completely. Of course we do. We have, we are already seeing very significant changes, but we also more than anything 
need climate action, especially from such a polluting industry like fashion. And yeah, I don't know. This apocalypse language to me doesn't sit right personally. No, exactly. It's really about separating this marketing language from the true sustainability intent of the brand. Like, for example, this clothing for apocalypse phrase, it feels like that's the reason that the brand is creating the clothing and out of this extreme urgency, which, you know, an impending doom, which is not to lessen the urgency of the climate crisis. But I think that designing clothing that is not extractive and exploitative speaks to a belief that another kind of world is possible. And we need to know, not just focus on like this short term urgency, but rather look at these long term practices that allow us to live in harmony. So, yeah, I think it's just about sifting through marketing <laughs> as well. Yeah. Totally, totally. That was such a beautiful way to put it. But I guess let's talk about our final takes, like green or greenwashing. I mean, for me, it depends on the context, like not using it as an excuse to make more stuff, but considering like if we are going to make clothes perhaps and make them climate crisis ready, I guess, and let's make them useful, durable, and obviously sustainably. I don't know. What do you think? No, totally. I think my takes have already come out in the episode. But to summarize, (laughs) I think we need to find ways to not make this another avenue for exclusivity in the sustainable fashion movement, especially when the climate crisis is going to affect us all. And then also just to focus on just really intentional, sustainable production and ethical production instead of creating more doom and gloom narratives that just create a sense of panic (laughs) in the midst of this crisis as well. Yeah, I think that's all for me. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Subscribe or follow the Conscious Style Podcast for more episodes like this one. It would also mean so much if you could take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or rating on Spotify. This helps our content on conscious fashion reach more people. Have some thoughts after listening to this episode? Let's continue the conversation over on Instagram. You can DM at Conscious Style. For more slow fashion resources, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Conscious Edit at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash edit. Subscribers also get access to a 12-page roundup of sustainable fashion resources upon signing up. Again, that link is ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash edit. The link is also below in the episode description. Thanks again for listening today. There will be another episode next Tuesday. In the meantime, you can check out our backlog of the 70 plus episodes we've already published. Bye for now and talk to you again soon.